This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For more than two decades, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. What is the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, PRAC, and how does it conduct its oversight? What are the most effective ways to combat fraud related to the pandemic response? And what is meant by agile oversight, and how does it differ from traditional oversight approaches? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Bob Westbrooks, author of Left Holding the Bag, a watchdog's account of how Washington fumbled its COVID test, and former executive director of the PRAC. Bob, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me on. I want to know a little bit more about yourself, Bob. Uh, Could you tell us about your career, your background, your expertise? Sort of informs why you even felt compelled to write the book. So I'm a career watchdog and a career public servant. I spent 28 years in in public service. I uh, began my professional career as a lawyer. I was trained as a lawyer, and I did that for three years. Um, Absolutely hated that line of work, so I I realized that uh, uh, I was really drawn to public service. And um, so I became a U.S. Postal Inspector. I became an agent, and I did that for the the early part of my career, and I uh, was really drawn to working fraud cases. Um, And I thought I was pretty good at it, but I thought I could be even better at it if I uh, retooled myself as a as a certified public accountant because the more complex fraud cases really deal with financial issues and you need the ability to translate um, financial data and explain it to to juries. So I uh, retrained as a as a CPA and I worked my way up um, and got some other professional certifications along the way and I, I worked my way up through the inspector general ranks um, until. Uh, I was the named the deputy inspector general at the Small Business Administration. Great experience pre-pandemic, so it was a small, relatively backwater, thought of as a backwater agency. Of course, it became the the center of the universe during the pandemic. But I spent some time there before I was appointed um, IG at the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which is technically a part of the Department of Labor. And of course, the other main area uh, of pandemic focus was the pandemic unemployment insurance, which are managed and run through uh, the U.S. Department of Labor. So uh, that's a little bit about my story. And so, you know, I, I, I bring both the auditor experience and the investigative experience and the legal experience to, to bear and, and sort of looking and framing the problems. I want to understand, Bob, what prompted you to write this book, Left Holding the Bag? It's a really interesting read. And who's the core audience? You know, so I've heard a lot of authors say that uh, they they wanted to write a book. Um, and then other authors say you you they felt compelled or they had to write the book. And that's what this was. It was like a story that I had that I felt like it had to come out. And it was because of the unique role that I had during the pandemic. You know, um, I had front row seats to a, 
uh, historic moment in time in American history. And there was a lot of lessons learned and, and a lot of observations that I had. And I thought, you know, is, this needs to get reduced to writing. We need to preserve our national pandemic story. You know, on the individual level, you know, the p- pandemic emergencies bind us. On the individual level, it's totally normal and healthy for us to try to forget all about that. But on a national level, we can't afford to forget the, the pandemic stories. You know, the core audience for the book are really folks interested in um, government and politics, um, I think. But it is not a political book. As I say uh, at the very beginning, I'm less concerned with um, who did what. I'm more concerned with where we fell short and how we're going to fix it moving forward. I think it's also what uh, the book will appeal to folks that are the uh, the, the true crime junkies, uh, because I do talk <laughs> quite a bit about uh, the historic uh, fraud crisis mm-hmm. and a stunning crime wave that uh, that hit our country, and for history buffs as well. I lay out the historic record and the context from uh, the very beginning in January through uh, through the pandemic emergency. Interesting story. Um, you're right. I can see why you was, you said earlier, uh, Bob, that. Um, history geeks would like to this book because there's something around the inspector general concept. I, I didn't know this until I read your book that it predates the formation of the U.S. Um, I wanted you to elaborate a little bit more of that. To, and 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 what exactly do inspectors general do, and how do they conduct the work that they're charged with? Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny. They, you know, I spent uh, like I said, 28 years in public service, and and uh, a common question that I'd get from uh, career civil servants, senior level people that I worked with over the years, they would pull me aside and they'd be like, you know what? Uh, it's been great working with you, Bobkin. I still don't really understand what IGs do. And these would be folks that have been around decades in government because it is a mysterious job and it's and it's not an intuitive job. Um, and it's very quirky and nuanced. So let me try to explain. So the concept originally came from the French. It came from Napoleon and he had he had uh, borrowed a, a Prussian army captain to be um, – uh, General Washington borrowed from uh, Napoleon's army to be the first inspector general of the Continental or Revolutionary Army. And it's like – and what Washington thought was like, hey, I need objective eyes and ears in the field because I can't really trust what my commanders are telling me. I need to know what's really going on and somebody that was not afraid to tell me the, the, the cold hard truth. And that was the inspector general concept. Subsequently, the uh, the army and the navy created that position permanently in in the U.S. government, and, but it took decades and decades uh, for it to go into civil service. In 1978, following Watergate, um, Congress created uh, the first core group of inspector generals at a handful of large departments, and those large those the number of IGs have just expanded over time. There's about 75 now, and and agencies and departments, large and small government corporations. One thing to keep in mind with IGs, the, the, really the core value is independence, right? You've got to be independent. You do independent audits and investigations. You can't order an agency to do anything. All you can do is issue recommendations for corrective action. So, you know, it would be great during the fraud crisis if we could order an agency to do something, implement the controls we just talked about, but you can't. You have to persuade them through um, through evidence and uh, sound reasoning that this is the right path to, to, to go on. The IG mantra, which is written um, in the law and on the hearts of everybody in the IG community, is uh, prevent and detect waste, fraud, and abuse. That's the core mission. You do that through audits and investigations. Um, 
In terms of the day-to-day, and this is where it gets tricky where people are like, okay, I get the concept of it, but what does that mean day-to-day? Well, IGs are responsible for overseeing agency annual financial statement audit, which is a really big deal for public uh, accountability. Um, they're responsible for overseeing the IT security uh, evaluations that are done annually. And then there's, th- there's really three groups of, uh, of activities that they do. One is, is payment integrity. Make sure people get paid in the right that the right amount gets to the right people on the right time. Then there's program integrity, which is making sure that federal programs run the way that they're supposed to run, and that people are not stealing from those programs. And then there's personnel integrity, and that's making sure that uh, federal employees and contractors and other personnel um, are acting in the government's best interest and to hold them accountable um, if they're not. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that size. How you, how one can can do effective oversight with that kind of tranche of money. It's a, but before we get into that, I want to talk about the oversight component, um, and that is uh, the PRAC. As I mentioned earlier, it stands for the uh, Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. Bob, you were the first um, executive director. Um, can you tell us about the mission of the PRAC? How did it conduct oversight? Um, during your tenure, and I know this is a multi-layered question. How much of it of this concept in the bill um, did the legislator, legislature, uh, or the policy developers rely on the recovery, accountability, and transparency board concept, which to some pejoratively was called the rat board, um, in the creation of a prac? Some I know there's a lot of, and is there differences? And could you could yeah. you help us with that understanding that? Absolutely. So, yeah, one of the accountability mechanisms in the CARES Act was the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, the PRAC, and it was set up to um, bring together a committee of uh, inspector generals who had oversight over large pandemic funds. So it was a committee of the Council of IGs. Okay. In a matter of months, we became significantly larger than SIGI itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had a professional staff, and, and under the law, the the there was a called for the appointment of a full-time executive director who had experience overseeing large spending programs. Um, and so that's uh, one of the reasons that I uh, was asked to take on the role. And the job was to coordinate oversight, pandemic oversight across government and support the role of the IGs. Um, there was also a number of additional authorities that was given in it. But that was how we originally saw our main role was, you know, how do we leverage and bring the community together and increase collaboration and coordination among all the entities, not only the federal IGs, but also state and local partners as well. Um, some interesting uh, historical uh, uh, footnotes that I that I put in the book. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the the, the RAP board. Uh, the recovery board is what the IGs like to refer to that as because of the term. Um, so they, they didn't, uh, the community didn't love that term, but, uh, originally they one of the early versions of, um, uh, the CARES Act, somebody said, Hey, let's, um, let's call it the Coronavirus Accountability and Transparency Committee or the CAT Committee as opposed to the RAT Board. Um, that was, uh, was clever, but I think perhaps a little too cute for some folks. So they said, no, you know, let's call it something else. And so somebody came up with the idea. The next version was the Coronavirus uh, Stimulus Oversight Board, which, of course, that would have been shorthanded to the uh, Coronavirus SOB, which <laughs> that wouldn't have worked either. So somebody said, let's go with the PRAC. The PRAC won out, luckily. Um, 
And, you know, and there was some significant differences from, um, from the recovery board, but, but it's clear and you can, you can trace this. Um, I said there was only a seven day legislative gestation period. So, uh, congressional staff, uh, did a cut and paste from the recovery act and they dropped it in the cares act. And then they, they originally, um, vetted it when the, with the IG community. And the original response from the IG community was, we don't think we, we need an additional organization at this point in time because SIGI is so mature. The IGs are doing well. They have their own, many have their own data analytics capabilities. So why don't you just fund the individual offices? We may not need a new organization, but you know, luckily wiser, wiser minds prevailed and we realized yeah, we needed to do that, but we needed to bring it up to date. Some of the ways they brought it up to date was to create a full-time executive director, which is the role that I served in. Um, in addition to that, um, they gave us investigative authority. And, you, and what's interesting about that is we did not use that authority to hire an army of agents. We could have. We had the budget for it. But we didn't want to compete with the IGs that were already in this space. We're like, well, how do we use that authority to really – leverage what the IGs are doing. So we use that really from a data analytics standpoint because that gave us the authority to get access to certain non-public data sets that we would not have otherwise been able to get. So that was a super powerful tool that we have. And then the other one, and it was, I call it the great superpower that Congress gave us. We're gonna, I think we may talk about this a little later, but it's a direct hire authority. Mm -hmm. So Congress said, okay, if we need to get this organization up quickly, you have direct hire authority. You can hire rehired annuitants. You can hire retired federal employees. You can bring them back without it impacting their pension. You can hire folks without uh, federal status. You can set administrative salaries up to a limit. And the benefit is a draw to people because it's only a five-year term is if they stay for two years, they will acquire federal civil service status. So those are very powerful tools in terms of like a lesson learned from a legislative standpoint that we could not have done what we did if Congress did not give us those tools. And I saw the benefit when you're a small agency, yeah, there's always a risk that those tools can be used and and not be effective, right? And the classic people would be like, well, you can use those to promote cronyism. But when you're under the microscope like we were, we were going to hire the best of the best and we did. So those are really powerful tools and I'm proud that... Uh, that we're able to use them to the to the full extent, and the final thing. So we we were we were the the recovery board uh, was primarily an audit and transparency office that really their claim to fame was on the transparency side and data analytics. We had uh, audit authority, investigative authority, and the transparency mission, and we used all three. That's interesting. You know, I want to jump ahead a little bit if you don't mind, because I was wondering what prompted you to take the role of ED for PRAC and um, did anybody influence you? Had it? What, what, could you tell us that story? That part of the book is very interesting. Yeah. So it was the challenge of a lifetime. Um, I did not go seeking it out. Um, there was not a long line of qualified individuals who were uh, raising their hand because it was a very volatile uh, environment at the time that, uh, you know, readers can, can, can um, look in the book for the, for the details. But um, it was a tough time. And, you know, uh, all public servants are individuals and people too and, and, and have families or whatever. And a, a global pandemic is an absolutely terrible time, the worst time to change jobs. Yes. 
um, and to convince other people to change jobs. Um, so none of that uh, escaped me. Um, but I got a call on my, my cell phone one day uh, while I was uh, enjoying remote work life. Uh, I was walking off lunch with my, my wife and I got a cell phone call from a number I didn't recognize and I never answer that. But for some reason I did on that day. And it was a uh, an IG colleague of mine, uh, Paul Martin, the IG at uh, at NASA, who was the vice chair for the PRAC, and he was inquiring and whether I'd be interested in this this opportunity. And I listened and, and heard him out. And I, when I hung up, I looked at my wife, and she said, "You know who's that?" And I said, uh, "You know, it's Paul." He was in, thought asked if I was interested in this opportunity. Yeah, no thanks. I want nothing to do with that hot mess. And that was my that was my thought. I, it was my initial thought. And I subsequently got a call from uh, from Paul and then Michael Horowitz, who was who had quietly assumed the role of the the prac chair by that point. And um, they they eventually um, offered me the job. You know, sometimes public service is is doing things that you necessarily um, don't want to do, but you feel like you have to do it. You know, I felt like I was uniquely qualified for this role, not only with the prior experience, but probably just as important as uh, being a member of the IG community. I knew all the players. I knew all the IGs. I knew them very well. I worked with them very well. Um, so now I was stepping out of the IG role, actually taking a pay cut to do so, but I was uh, helping them in their missions, and uh, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. It was a great opportunity, but ultimately it was my... Uh, I have to give credit where credit's due. I have to credit my wife for it because I was I was heavily leaning towards a no, uh, and my wife uh, was the one that said, I, I think you really need to take this job. What is agile oversight? Well, we'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the special edition of the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Bob Westbrooks, author of Left Holding the Back, a watchdog's account of how Washington fumbled its COVID test. Bob, you start off the book by, you know, recasting or retelling or kind of crystallizing some of the issues um, the, the pandemic crisis sort of tested the government of the United States. And I was hoping you could sort of give us a sense of what are those ways and maybe identify them for us. Yeah. I, you know, there's there's nothing like a, a crisis to test your metal, right? It it reveals um, 
it measures your capabilities and it reveals your character pretty early. And I think that's true whether you're, it, whether we're talking about ordinary individuals or you're talking about great nations. Um, the the COVID crisis tested our nation. There's no doubt. And the way I framed it, it was and it was immediate. Was you know it tested um, countries' ability to effectively communicate public health information to the American people in a clear, trusted, and unifying voice. Very early on, we were getting different messages from Washington on public health um, issues, whether it was masks or the need for ventilators or subsequently vaccines. That's not healthy for us as a country. The second test uh, for us was, you know, it tested the nation's ability to um, swiftly develop uh, and implement safe, trusted, and minimally invasive, uh, invasive um, public health countermeasures like social distancing and, uh, and vaccines and the like. The third, which is the primary theme of the book, the third test, was it, it tested our country's ability, Washington's ability to quickly distribute targeted relief aid and ensuring that it went to the right hands. But I think all parts of that, um, you know, the national test are intertwined. You can't, and that's why in the book I cover all three because you can't really pull them apart because they are all mm -hmm. interconnected. And finally, and this is really the the subject of another book, but it it, it needs to be written Fundamentally, the pandemic tested the American people's ability to share common facts and to act for the common good. And we really need to get our arms around that one because we were, as I detail in the book, we were at each other's throats from the beginning. The next question I have is around what prepared you. You kind of told us your your career story, but I'm wondering, you know, leading the PRAC, and I think it went from $2 trillion to $5 trillion, you just referenced before you left, right? Um, what prepared you to create a new office in your background or, you know, how did you do it? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing prepares you for this for this challenge. And, you know, like, like most people, uh, when you accept a new job, I'm like, of course I can do that. And then you quickly pivot your chair around and you Google or you go to Amazon to see if there's any books that might uh, help you in your journey. There was nothing. And quite honestly, that was another reason why I wanted to write this book is this is not the last crisis we'll be facing. And I hope that this book will give the next person that has to lead an oversight office a little bit of insight on how we went about doing it. It was really, you know, to me, it was like the only way, and it was really quick. It's like, we're going to have to beg, borrow, and deal our way to the solution, period. So the very first act I did, which, uh, you know, literally within an hour was I need a lawyer on staff, you know. We needed a smart lawyer to bring on board to help with all that uh, begging and borrowing and dealing. And uh, and we were able to get a great lawyer um, on detail pretty quickly. Next thing we needed was an IT person because you need the technology yeah. to do this. And then it became almost like, it's almost like ESPN. It's like now, next, later. It's like you, you have to segment what you're doing. And it's like, what do I need to do today? What do I need to do this week? And what do I need to do this month? And then from there, it quickly became... We need a stand-up plan, and we need to devise sprints, 30-day uh, sprints, so we can measure measure our progress, and um, and that's what we did. But the challenge to it, and what was the struggle, was, you know, you fight this urge of uh, any warm body will do, and you can't give in to that. And you also have to. Uh, we we had to fight the the pressure, the intense pressure that we had to move quickly. And I'm like, so I developed this mantra that I would remind myself regularly. It's like. Um, I'm moving forward with the required urgency in a swift and deliberate manner. And I, you know, I likened it to my days when I was a law enforcement officer and I do, uh, we do search warrants. 
and you go in and you do a search warrant at somebody's house, you're moving swiftly and you're clearing the rooms to make sure you're not going to get hurt, but you're not racing into a house because of the, because there's significant unknowns, but you have to move in a swift and deliberate manner. And that was the, my, my, our mindset from the beginning. It's like, as long as we do that, we'll be okay. So we started looking at the skill sets that we needed to hire for using our direct hire authority and saying, you know, this is not a traditional agency. We need different skill sets. And so we'd identify those skill sets. One of the things, like, I guess anybody that starts a new agency, you look at the statute and what, what, did, what did Congress write? What did they intend for us to do? What didn't they write? And where did they give us flexibility to use our discretion? And so we identified the the musts and the shalls in the statute and said, okay, here's what we need to do and we need to get some points on the board. And we did. And that's how we did. And so, um, you know, it was, we had a six month was the mark. We said, I, I, we need to be fully staffed with all the key leadership uh, positions filled within six months. And that's not only getting a, uh, a job announcement out or recruiting people and doing all the interviews, that's actually bringing them on board. And we, we hit our mark. That's impressive. Um, yeah, I liked your book because it was you told you told real stories, and I understand that the you say you wrote in your day book the, on your first day as executive director two initial thoughts: agile oversight and listening sessions. Now, before we discuss, because I'm, I'm I'm intrigued by this concept of agile oversight, but before we get into that, I was wondering how did you in what did you do about the listening sessions? Who were you listening to? Who'd you go around to? How did you engage that? Yeah, great question. So. Um, and I found quite honestly, uh, let me back up one step on that, that, um, and that was one of the leadership practices I've had for a number of years. And I think it's just invaluable as to whether you want to call it a day book, a journal or a diary, you really need to, to jot these things down. It's a tremendous way to reflect and see where you're making mistakes and course correct, uh, appropriately. Um, so yeah, I wrote those down. So the, and, and I will say with both of those concepts, um, it was only with the significant input of others and that they morphed and they became signature accomplishments of the PRAC. But with the listening sessions, when I was contemplating taking the job, I looked at the statute and there was this one uh, a paragraph that, that gave the PRAC public hearing authority. It could can hold public hearings and subpoena witnesses to come testify. That was interesting because no IGs have that. So the listening sessions were like, how can we actually use that mm -hmm. to do something other than what you sadly too often see on Capitol Hill with in a hyper partisan environment with hearings? I'm like, you know what? You can actually use that hearing authority to create a historic record of objective facts. You could call in experts and get their viewpoints on various issues. The PRAC had not only to police the federal spending, it was also the pandemic, federal pandemic response. It's like there's a lot of opportunity for us to bring people in to use that hearing authority to not necessarily, you know, conduct a traditional hearing, but to use it for these listening sessions. So uh, early June was our first session we did. And I remember it very, very well because we had uh, Dr. Jha, who became the White House coronavirus coordinator later. Um, he was at either Harvard or, or Brown at the time. He was one of our first expert witnesses. We had the head of the National Nurses Association and the head of the State and Local Auditors Association. We got their perspectives on um, on the pandemic at that point in time. 
It was a tremendous amount of work. I felt like I was a more of a Hollywood showrunner than an executive director because I was dealing with the technology and the witnesses and all that. So, so literally that Saturday, I'm like, okay, I need to reorder my hiring priorities and bring on a team that can do that permanently. And we did. And I think uh, by the time I left, we, I think we had maybe 12 events where we brought in experts on a range of issues from individual members of the public who um, and their experiences applying for financial relief. We did the small business community. We did the perspectives of um, the lending community. With the healthcare, we had an, uh, the banking. We, we had a number of different hearings from different perspectives. One thing that was really cool about it is we, we partnered on a number of these with uh, National Academy of Public Administration. Yeah. So we had NAPA, and so um, we, we relied upon them to have you know bigger events, better witnesses, and they were great. We actually won an award for our partnership, our public-private partnership with them. I think it was a great model, and it was a true win-win, and uh, we created a, a record of um, issues of concern. You know, I was wondering, the next thing you wrote was agile oversight, and I was hoping you could uh, tell us what that is and how does that concept because you hear about Agile every, everywhere now, yeah. right? But how does that concept and its practice kind of differ or complement traditional oversight activities? Great question. Uh, and this is the issue that's probably number one near and dear to my heart. Um, traditional oversight or audits can take about a year. You know, we have a saying in the community that uh, audits shouldn't have a birthday, but they sometimes do. They sometimes take longer than that. And, and policymakers and the American people needed insights now. That was one of these things that was like, that was a mantra for us, insights now. How do we provide insights now? And um, Agile is everywhere, right? And it, and it had migrated several years ago into the internal audit world in the private sector. So they're actually experimenting with this, but it, it never really reached the federal oversight community. I'd written about this a couple of years ago, and I think part of the reason is, is, is our work has to be bulletproof, right? Um, it's public by nature. It's going to live forever. And you're going to be criticized anyway. And so if, if you put out a product that is incomplete um, or, or or not quite ripe, you're going to get criticized. So there's this reluctance, I think, from a lot of folks. And then there's the piece like, how does this actually fit within government auditing standards? So one of the first things we did was like, you know what, we need to promote this because we need insights now. So we have to figure out how and, and articulate how it fits within professional auditing standards, and we need to hold up those examples. So I'll give you a couple examples of what it what it means. So so agile. When we talk about agile, it's really about smaller scoped, iterative, shorter term projects, and working closely with your auditees or stakeholders to deliver what they want or need. Okay, some great examples, and I am and I'm I'm super proud uh, of the community for this. Um, April 6th, 2020. So the, you know, the CARES Act was just signed. The pandemic was raging. The Health and Human Services uh, Acting Inspector General, Christy Grimm and her team, put out a survey report, a national survey of PPE supplies in our nation's hospitals, personal protective equipment. And in a matter of four days, they had surveyed 323 hospitals around the country to identify that and they were the first people to really sound the alarm like, hey, our hospitals and our, our nursing and uh, healthcare staff, they don't have the, the PPE supplies that they need. And they're not ready. They're not ready when this pandemic really hits hard. And so that was an example, that poll survey, you know, pre-pandemic, you're not going to get in a matter of a few days, 
you're not going to see a product like that on the street. But it was so critically important for HHS OIG to get that product out. And I'm eternally grateful because I've got two of my kids are hospital nurses. And so it wasn't just like a national, you know, theoretical thing for me. I mean, it was very personal for me that I wanted the American people in the White House to know that there is not enough PPE equipment in our nation's hospitals where my kids work to try to save other people's lives. That was a great example in my mind of agile oversight. Another one that people don't think about, and I, I really credit uh, Justice uh, Inspector General Michael Horowitz for this, um, pandemic was raging in our nation's prisons. And we often don't think about that. It's not a first priority, right? But for family members that have loved ones in prisons and for people that, uh, Americans that work in the Bureau of Prison Systems and their families, it is a major concern. And so we didn't know what the uh, positive rates were, uh, hospitalization, or the death rates were in our nation's prisons. So one of the things that uh, the Justice OIG did was to get that data, and then they created dashboards on their website to report that data so that loved ones could go on and see in the facility that their loved ones were incarcerated at or where their loved ones worked, they could see exactly the situation, not only at that facility, but in relation uh, to, to nation, nationwide numbers. So I think it was critically important, agile oversight. And those are things that they're non-traditional audit work. I, I've been very clear on this from the beginning. Agile will never take the place of traditional oversight work. It's there to really augment and supplement what is there. But whether it's a need to provide more transparency or a need to provide more oversight and sound the alarm quickly, that's what the IGs can do using agile oversight tools. So, Bob, from an oversight committee perspective, why was the government-wide pandemic spending guidance inefficient? I'll give you a short answer on this one. Quite simply, it was too little and too late. It didn't require reporting of all the data elements that was called for under the CARES Act. And it, did, and it called for agencies uh, to wait until July 2020 before they were to report COVID data. Um, that's a follow-up, and I was just wondering out, is there any rationale for why they wanted it that way? Well, you know, the, the rationale that they had said, which, and there's some merit to it, right? We were dealing with a crisis, so we had to get money out the door. And you had to code systems so that they could recognize, you know, what, was, what money was being spent you know, specifically for for COVID. So there was some merit um, to that. Um, when I originally saw the guidance, I, I had an optimistic view of it because it was a sentence that in which I attached a lot of weight to, which was this guidance will be updated as needed to provide supplemental reporting. And that never came. And I think that was the biggest shortcoming of OMB during that point in time is that promise never came to pass. So my next question was around Maybe you could elaborate more, Bob, on the serious deficiencies in the CARES Act itself around public reporting of federal spending. And how did the PRAC attempt, or other elements within the IG community address that, those issues? So some of the biggest gaps were, number one, in recipient reporting. So we didn't see where the money was going. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't see, you know, the subrecipients that received federal funds, COVID funds. You couldn't see who got what and what they were using it for. A lot of the stimulus programs were about creating, uh, saving or creating jobs, and you, there was none of that data that was reported. And then there were individual fights over um, sections of the law. Two in particular, one was the $150 billion coronavirus relief fund, which went to state and local governments. Um, the second was the Paycheck Protection Program. Treasury in the administration originally took the position was, uh, with the coronavirus relief fund 
we don't have to report that publicly. That data was not flowing through USA Spending. They're like, we that that data does not be, need to be reported. We don't have the way to to report it now. So, um, and we're not even sure Treasury OIG whether you have jurisdiction to oversee this because it was a, a ambiguity in this in the CARES Act that took that uh, took Congress to to fix several months later. And then the, for the PPP pro, uh, program. Originally, Cong uh, the administration was not going to provide that data, so you had no visibility who had gotten, which at that time had grown to $670 billion because it was an additional uh, funding for that. They originally said, we're not going to provide that information because that would disclose proprietary information about individual businesses in America when that would put them at a competitive disadvantage. Across government and the media and private sector, people howled over that. You had good, the good uh, government groups that uh, and the media that filed suits um, on that. They were like, we need to see and we need to get eyes on who's getting what. So then the administration took the position that, well, we're not going to provide all of the information on the Paycheck Protection Program, but for loans over 150000 we'll provide a range, a very large range of what their loan was. And for loans under $150,000, we are not going to tell you who got them. We'll just say the location and the amount. So for the vast majority of PPP spending, you had no visibility. And so it took, um, it took a lawsuit. And thank goodness we have entities in America that, um, that pursue this zealously. And, and with us um, complaining to the Hill, you know, the administration ultimately reconsidered that position. But it wasn't until... Uh, November, December timeframe that the Paycheck Protection Program was actually released and you could see um, who got what. So, you, you know, Bob, I was wondering, there's an interesting part of your book related to this and you, you folks had to do some, I wouldn't say what, the, I think you referred to them as workarounds to fill the gap yeah. and you, you referred to them as your secret for success. I was hoping you could elaborate on that. Yeah. So, we, you know, we had a mandate to post federal spending data on a website. We weren't able to get it from USA spending until July because the, the, the data would not be available. Um, there was no way for us to create a, a recipient reporting portal because that, of course, takes OMB direction. Um, so we were stuck and we're like, well, what can we do? So we just started and that was like our philosophy from the beginning is like grab whatever you can grab and get it on our website and we'll cobble together to tell as complete as we can the story on federal pandemic spending. So the first data set we got, um, federal contract data was being tagged COVID related. So we were able to, but that was only a small piece of it. They're like, well, let's go to the federal procurement data uh, system, FPDS. And we'll grab that data and post it on our website. So we did, that was the first thing that we grabbed and post there. And then through the course of the next several months or years, we just would identify different data sets that we would grab and post on our website that would tell a more comprehensive picture of federal um, pandemic spending. What are some of the key characteristics of pandemic fraud? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. 
Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Bob Westbrooks, author of Left Holding the Bag, a watchdog's account of how Washington fumbled its COVID test. So, Bob, would you tell us more about PRAC's Data Science Fellows Program? What prompted its creation and how does it help the PRAC meet its mission? So we had an early meeting, a fascinating meeting with the folks at um, um, usafacts.org, which is a nonprofit um, transparency organization, which was founded by Steve Ballmer, uh, the co-founder of Microsoft. And so we arranged a video call with him, and he's our center square on the video call. And um, on that call, there was this kid from college in a T-shirt. And at the time, we were, we were really struggling. The country was really struggling with COVID public health data. And this kid was describing how he would cobble together data from different data sets in this very innovative way. To, um, to tell a more comprehensive uh, picture on uh, data transparency with COVID data. Immediately after the call, uh, Paul Martin and myself uh, emailed each other like, how do we hire that kid? And we found out, so I reached out to Steve Ballmer's uh, folks, and I uh, found out that he was in Ballmer's graduate class at Stanford. So he was not going to be a likely candidate, but I was told sort of how we can reach those really bright data scientists graduating uh, from universities um, that have an interest in public service. So we did that. So we created this program, the Data Science Fellows Program, um, based upon that phone call. We're like, why don't we hire the best and brightest who have a unique opportunity, once-in-a-lifetime chance to to be involved with $5 trillion in, in government spending? We'll hire them, we'll fund them, and we'll actually place them in the offices of Inspector General for free. Because that's where the work is being done. So rather than keep them ourselves, we'll place them out there. And so, um, and we could use our hiring authorities under the CARES Act. If they stay on for two years, it provides them a pathway to public service. So it was a win-win. And we purposefully didn't recruit exclusively from the colleges on the coast. We went uh, to non-traditional universities to promote uh, diversity and, and inclusion. So we got some incredibly bright young people um, that are now, you know, federal data scientists. Yeah, I want to stay with the data because you mentioned how important it is to make the connecting the dots, and and you also established the Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence Pace. What prompted that creation, and how does it relate to what was done during the Recovery Act? What was interesting is in the CARES Act, it doesn't even say that we had to provide a data analytics function. It's totally absent, and that was the the big legacy from the Recovery Board. And But it was clear from the beginning that we needed to do that. There was somebody, uh, a former senior OMB official had written an op-ed piece, uh, you know, within a week saying, you know, reconstitute the rock, the Recovery Operations Center. So we knew that that was going to be the prism through which we'd be judged. Um, but we needed to move also beyond the realm of lore. Uh, and we're like, you know what, times have changed. A lot of these OIGs have their own data analytics capabilities now. So this is going to look different than the rock. And... A lot of the IGs were drowning in fraud complaints. The last thing they needed from me 
was to generate more fraud complaints. What they needed was using data and technology to help them. So we intentionally created the, this function as a uh, analytics center of excellence concept. We're like, well, let's leverage the great work that's already being done around the IG community and augment that. So it was, a, it was truly a center of excellence concept. In some respects, we would act as a data broker. If they had their own abilities, we would have the data set. We would, we would share with them the entire data set rather than us doing the analytics. In other instances, we would use our data scientists to, de to, to develop new technology tools to help those offices. Examples of that, there's one called entity resolution. How do you know that in a data set that Robert A. Westbrooks is the same as R.A. Westbrooks is the same as Bob Westbrooks? Well, you can create code to identify that as the same individual or likely the same individual. So we wrote that code and we shared that code with the OIGs so they could perform entity resolution. We also developed risk models. So SBA Inspector General drowning in hotline complaints. We're like, how do you thin the haystack so they can find the needles? We'll develop a hotline risk scoring model using natural programming language that you can filter through, you know, hundreds of thousands of complaints. And then with the coronavirus relief fund at the Department of Treasury, they had so many individual grants that they were supposed to audit that they couldn't possibly audit out of those. So we needed to build a risk model for them so they could filter out and identify which were the highest risk. Uh, grants that they needed to to devote their audit attention. So those are just some examples of what we did with the Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence. Yeah, innovative. And, uh, you know, I want to transition from the tools you created, the programs you created to to meet the mission of the PRAC to what you saw in terms of fraud characteristics. What kind of fraud did we see? I, I know you reference in your book, Bob, the, the self-certification uh, language that the Small Business Loan Program uh, had in it or had as part of it, which led to a massive fraud. Um, like, what what did you see and why did the legislation have that in there? And um, just give us a sense of what the the fraud landscape looked like from your vantage point. You know, as I, as I write in the book, it was the largest public fraud crisis in American history. It was, you know, it was transnational, it was systemic, um, and it was brazen. And that was a thing that was stunning, you know, in, in 2022, I think the one industry that did pretty well, it seemed to me, was the luxury car market because um, all the fraudsters were going out and buying Lamborghinis. We call them the Lamborghini cases because it was luxury cars that they were using their newfound wealth on. Um, but um, it was, um, you know, every conceivable scheme, you know, I, I liken it as really there are three types of offenders. There were There were novice fraudsters that this was their first time and it was... There was too large of an attack surface and too much money on the table that they couldn't pass it up. And we didn't do enough to harden our defenses. So you had novice offenders. You had experienced offenders that had done fraud before but saw a great opportunity, so they took advantage of it. And then we got hit with professional fraudsters, transnational professional fraudsters, gangs that hit our program and hit would file hundreds and hundreds of claims, for, you know, unemployment insurance or uh, small business loans. Um, the Secret Service confirmed this, so I can I can speak to this. But um, one of the things that should worry all Americans is um, identity verification. Um, we, we're hacked all the time, and I think most people know that. But we're not only hacked by just random hackers, but we're hacked by foreign governments. So there's a group, it's called APT41. That stands for Advanced Persistent Threat. They are made up of members of the Chinese military. And they're professional hackers. An advanced persistent threat should give you an idea of the risk that we're facing. 
They do this full time. They're very good and they work in shifts and they attack us all the time. They were the ones that were responsible and they've since been charged by Department of Justice, a couple of members for the Equifax breach that happened in 2017. I think it was like 140 million records. All of your personal information, I guarantee you, I can go online now in about five minutes or less. I could buy all of your personal information for less than the price of a Chipotle burrito. And that was the problem. There was so much data available. And there were tutorials, first on the dark web, here's how to commit fraud. And then when agencies would, would tweak controls, it's like, here's how to defeat controls now. It was not only on the dark web, but it was also in, in the public web. They were on YouTube. There were videos on how to commit fraud. So it was just all over the place. Uh, and we saw it in every program. And we saw really, you would see this pattern. I, you know, I called it the trifecta, that people would actually were like, well, why not hit all three of the big programs? We'll hit the PPP program. We'll hit the disaster loan program. And we'll file unemployment ins- fraudulent unemployment insurance claims. And you had many, many cases where the same fraudster would actually hit all three of those programs. Fascinating story. Your book does a wonderful job of telling that story and the evolution and maturation and gestation of the prac. But I was hoping, you know, you also do a great part in the latter part of your book about what we can learn from this experience and what we can do better. And I'd like to spend some time on that. And um, I want to highlight some of your insights. what does transparency and accountability, why do transparency and accountability, Bob, go hand in hand? And could you elaborate on the six C's, North Star design principles for with government data? Yeah, absolutely. Transparency is absolutely key. Quite simply, from an audit or an investigative standpoint, um, you can't audit or police uh, what you can't see, right? So transparency is key for watchdogs. But transparency also plays in another important role, deterrence. You know, don't discount the the significance of public scrutiny or public shame. It is a powerful deterrent. On the very same day that I was appointed PRAC Executive Director, April 27, 2020, the uh, media reported that the Los Angeles Lakers had quietly given back their PPP loan because they were identified as having taken it and perhaps not in need of a PPP loan. Um, there were other prominent recipients that gave back their loans because they were subject to public scrutiny or shame. Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, Shake Shack, Nathan's Hot Dogs, you know, they all got millions of dollars in PPP loans and realized that maybe we should, we are not entitled as maybe that's not who Congress, the American people had in mind with small business relief. And there's another piece, and, I'm, and there's a theme I mentioned quite a bit in the book. Oversight is a team sport. And there's a guy that I just, I, I, and I, I want to hold up the, the project on uh, government oversight, Pogo, who does just amazing work and USA Facts, but there's also scholars and academics that probably have done the leading work on looking at the role of fintech lenders on the PPP program. Some fascinating research there. And then there's a guy that I hold up in the book. His name is Jim Richards. He's out of California, former federal prosecutor, former bank uh, risk management guy who knows more about PPP fraud than probably anybody I know outside of government. And because of public data, he would scrutinize individual fraud cases and provide insights and perspectives from his role as a prosecutor and a bank person that I don't know that anybody else could have done that. And he would post these on LinkedIn. And I think he's got like 188 chapters now where he he digests these fraud cases. And I thank God that we live in a country where we have data that's publicly available that somebody like Richards can go and pull this data down and enlighten all of us and keep us all, keep the issue front of mind. 
So that's the benefit of transparency. On the six North Star design principles on government data, public federal data should be comprehensible, right? It should be easy to understand. It should be citizen-focused, right? Concentrated on their interests. It should be comprehensive or as complete uh, uh, as practicable. It should be connected with contextual links to other data. It should be contemporaneous or timely, and it's got to be correct. Now, if you go to pandemicoversight.gov, I think you'll see a website that really embodies or incorporates those six principles there. It's never going to be perfect, but I think that's a North Star that you need to be driving towards. I found it very useful when I read that in your book there. So, uh, Bob, you mentioned in your book that you know fraud happens at the best of times, but uh, I was interested, how can one combat fraud during the worst of times when a bunch of programs are established to address the consequences of the worst of times? And if you don't mind, how much of the $5 trillion COVID relief funds were lost to fraud? That's the big question everybody wants to know. <laughs> First of all, I, I, I do want to state clearly up front, we will never eliminate fraud in large relief programs. That's not realistic, right? But the American taxpayer should expect and demand that reasonable steps be taken to uh, deter and deny fraud um, attempts, which I call blocking, uh, and detect and disrupt fraud as early as possible, which I call tackling. I think the government can walk and chew gum at the same time. I don't think that program integrity and program delivery are mutually exclusive. I think at the bare minimum, agencies should be using available data and technology to make sure that um, you are who you say you are and the identity used is not a fake or stolen, that you are in fact eligible for the program and that the correct benefit amount for that program, the benefit amount for that program is correctly calculated. I think those are the absolute basics. And I think short of a situation where we're throwing bread and water bottles at the, at the back of a pickup truck, I think you should expect, and the American taxpayer should expect government to implement those basic fraud controls. And I think over time, you can strengthen your fraud controls. And I think um, that's the thing that I would probably fault government for more than anything, is I think there was a discernible moment uh, in you know mid-2020 that I think we should have been tightening up our fraud controls. And what I saw was agencies, by and large, did not do that unless they were forced to do that by their... Um, by their IGs blowing the whistle and 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 barking about um, fraud gaps. So the question, how much was lost to fraud, is one that I was uh, frequently yeah. asked about, and and I do want to caution you and our listeners not to fixate on that number or a number. <laughs> the honest answer is, um, I don't know for sure. Yeah. Nobody knows, yeah. uh, and nobody ever will be able to say with any degree of precision how much was lost to fraud and waste. I can say confidently that we lost hundreds of billions of dollars in pandemic relief uh, to fraud and waste. And the final number, whenever we get that, is going to be an unacceptable, unprecedented, and unfathomable amount in both absolute and relative terms. My best guess when it's all tallied up is that we will likely lost about $500 billion to, to fraud and waste. Um, and we, the taxpayers, are left holding the bag on that. So how can we make anti-fraud activities a national priority? So as I uh, write in the book, you know, from my seat, I believe, you know, Washington fumbled the COVID test and in many ways failed the American people. You know, there's plenty of blame to go around. Um, the first thing we have to do is preserve the national pandemic story. And hopefully this book will be part of that. And we need to reflect on how the, the pandemic evolved. I worry, though, that, you know, folks focus too much on the shortcomings of the opposing party rather than addressing the, the root cause. I think we have to recognize the national security limit, uh, implications of of fraud. 
Um, you know, I mentioned uh, APT 41 and uh, our adversaries not only stealing inf uh, our uh, PII information, personal identifying information, um, and hacking into our systems, but also the Secret Service confirmed that uh, they were responsible, believed to be responsible for $20 million in fraud losses and probably much higher and probably have hit every all 50 states. Um, do we have to recognize the national security implications of fraud, right? So the first thing is a statement of intention here. I think um, there are great lessons that we learned from the American Rescue Plan that need to be uh, uh, fixed in law or regulation or uh, White House directive. And one of those is on the, uh, the implementation side. I, I know that's one of the issues in Washington now is the messiness of, of implementing uh, what seemed to be great ideas. Um, well, what we did with the American Rescue Plan, and it wasn't perfect, but I think it was pretty good, is we had senior level people at the table from the beginning before the White House would sign off on implementation, where from our perspective, we wanted to know two things. What are you doing about program integrity and what are you doing about transparency? And we would ask the tough questions. Those meetings had positive results. One of the things was um, that immediately comes to mind was um, through those meetings, we were able to drive the Small Business Administration to block foreign IP numbers. That was a direct benefit of like, well, this is this is a no-brainer. We need to figure out how, um, at the very least, we can, we can build this fraud control. And, but there were a number of examples where we were able to tighten up controls incrementally over time by using these what we call gold standard meetings. So I think that's critical for us moving forward is having a you know clear direction from the White House that's implemented from senior level people, getting the right people to, at the table to talk about fraud and transparency. I want to take this opportunity to thank you for your time today, but more importantly, thank you for your dedicated service to the country when you were, when you were in government. But this book is really a helpful window into what happened for, for those three years um, around the COVID response? And how can people get your book? book will be on, the book is on Amazon. So uh, look for it there. It's available in uh, ebook, uh, hardcover, and paperback. An audiobook is coming out in August. Thanks again, Bob. Thank you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Bob Westbrooks, author of Left Holding the Bag, a watchdog's account of how Washington fumbled its COVID test, and former executive director of the PRAC. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.